Warning, the Federal Communications Commission requires that we inform you that this episode of the Derek Duvall Show may contain content inappropriate for children. Listener discretion is advised. The FCC also requires us to inform you that this episode may contain the words f***, s***, asshole, mother boy, dumpster, galloping wit, but in like a British way, and also, strangely, cul-de-sac. Once again, this show may contain content not suitable for anyone but the coolest children. Listener discretion is advised. Powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, folks, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy, guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Wow, we made it to 2021, Planet Earth, and the friggin' universe did not implode. You know how I'm sure of that? Well, surprise, and welcome to episode 8 of your new favorite talk show, my show, the Derek Duvall Show. Believe me when I tell you I think I speak for the entire of human civilization that we were counting down the second to the ball drop with sheer excitement and also a wee dram of dread. But we made it, and here we are. Our last episode, the Jeopardy episode, was a huge success, and I want to thank Jeff Brown and Tim Edwards for ensuring that we had a quality show. Be sure to listen to that one if you haven't already. So, episode 8, what do I have in store for you? (laughs) Well, unclench your butt cheeks, Planet Earth, as I have indeed got an amazing show. It is my profound honor to announce that we have as a guest Mr. Rick Turner, master guitar luthier and rock and roll legend. When I say this man has had a legacy of over 50 years in the music business, believe me. This interview is incredibly genuine and revealing, even answering one of rock and roll's most endearing questions, Whatever Happened to Jerry Garcia's Lost Peanut Guitar? This interview talks about it all. The Boston music scene of the 60s, The Grateful Dead, Psychedelic Rock, The Beatles, Fleetwood Mac, Lindsey Buckingham, and the list goes on and on. This is your front row seat to some of rock's most legendary moments. So let's not stand on ceremony, and we'll jump right into this show. Please welcome to the show, for the very first time ever, Master Luthier and musical legend Mr. Rick Turner. How are you, sir? I'm pretty good, sir. This is yeah. this is indeed an honor for me. All right, I uh, start the show off by asking the most uh, relevant question for these troubled times. How is the COVID world treating you? Well, I had to shut the shop down in March and lay everybody off, including myself, and that went on for about three months. Somehow or other, I managed to keep paying the rent. Then, bit by bit, brought back in about. 60% of the crew that I had this time last year. Mm-hmm. But um, but I've got I've got great guys working for me. And so our production numbers are down in terms of, of units going out the door. But orders are coming in amazingly strong. I, I can scarcely believe it. But it seems like certain aspects of the music industry are continuing to do quite well, especially with everybody hunkering down at home and home recording and all that. So it's funny. Um, 
I don't know whether to trust it or not. Uh, and maybe this will be under control in six months or so and people can get back to gigging. That sure would be nice. I, I had my doubts as to whether we were going to survive this, but it looks like we are. So. All right. So you've been, yeah. on, you've been on the music scene for over 50 years, and it's not up for debate that you have left a, a rather incredible footprint in terms of guitars and sound. Let's take it back to the beginning. Let's start with uh, sure. how in, that's how you got into your apprenticeship for repairing guitars. How long did it take to do that? And uh, how long did it take you to actually learn how to play a guitar? Well, I started playing guitar when I was about 11 or 12. My dad was an artist and always liked to have music on when he was painting. And a lot of it was guitar music. So when he, I forget how old he was, but my mom and I got him a guitar for, for his birthday one year. I, I couldn't have been more than 10 or 11 at the time. And um, he just kind of noodled around and, and it was just a, so music was a, a normal thing in in our household. I got into the whole folk music thing in the in the uh, late fifties, Kingston Trio and all that, and that led to the New York City Ramblers, and that led to Newport Folk Festivals and and all that. And I um, picked up a five string banjo, a Fairbanks and Cole. It's been made in Boston in the early 1890s wow and i i got it i found it in an antique shop in in my hometown of marblehead and took it apart and restored it fixed it up you know working with my hands was just a normal thing in my life i mean i i've always had some kind of a little workshop i made marbles as a kid i got away from doing the prepackaged ones and started designing my own oh, wow. boats and things like that when I was, you know, a pre-teenager and also got into electronics of a, of, of a certain nature. I remember when I was in junior high school, I, I built a, a little um, solar powered transistor radio. And so I've, I've always been into these things. And, you know, I grew up in a boat building town where making things was just kind of normal. It, it wasn't anything extraordinary. So fixed up this banjo when I was about 15, did a pretty good job on it, and took it off to boarding school, and I went to, and then got a Stella 12-string guitar, not one of the Harmony, it was one of the Harmony ones, not one of the Oscar Smith ones. Did some inlay work on it and fixed it up. And also a classmate of mine, his mom had a little Martin guitar in a closet that I discovered at his house at a party once. And she very kindly sold it to me for a very nice price, a 1921-217 little parlor guitar. So that was my introduction to having nice instruments. It was really the Martin and the and the banjo. And then 1962, I went off to Boston University and pretty much hated it. <laughs> <laughs> it was just not the right place for me. I'd been three years in a really rigorous boarding school, prep school. And so going to BU was like stepping back into junior high school. But I met a couple of guys immediately who became lifelong friends, one of which is uh, Lowell Levenger, also known as Banana from the Youngbloods. Oh, wow. And so um, so we became uh, roommates and then coffeehouse habitues. You know, so I, I kind of like to say that I went to Boston University, but I majored in coffeehouse. 
<laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it was a peak of the folk music boom there in Boston. And there were, you know, a number of coffee houses that always had great music. I mean, you could see everybody from Bill Monroe to Mississippi John Hurt to, you know, Lightning Hopkins and, you know, just amazing. And it was also at about the time that a lot of the well, not a lot, but some of the blues artists who had been recorded in the late 20s and early 30s uh, were rediscovered. People like Skip James and Mississippi John Hurt. Seeing as how that was pre-Boston sound, how did that lead you into your next phase of guitar repair? Basically, in 64, I, I started weaving leather guitar straps. Um, music re- a guitar repair shop in Boston thought they were pretty cool and thought they could sell a bunch of them. And they hired me to basically sit there all day and braid leather guitar straps. And in about a week and a half, I had more than they could sell in a year. <laughs> but, but they realized that I had some hand skill. Awesome. And so they, they started teaching me the what was then the state of the art of guitar repair which was pretty crude by modern standards, but but it was a start. So I, I was an apprentice there, you know, 10 bucks a week and all the hot dogs I could eat for lunch, I think was the deal. And I guess I worked there for about six or eight months, something like that. You know, meanwhile, theoretically, I was a student at BU, but I was, you know, skipping as many classes as I was going to. Then in 1964, the summer of 64, Banana and the other fellow, Michael Kane and I, opened a small music store on Martha's Vineyard in the back of a coffee house. Oh, wow. And, and it was a great, a great summer. Mostly we sold pot, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as, as you do. <laughs> uh, we did okay. We, did, we survived the summer. But what was funny was, that, uh, you know, the, the coffee house had great music. And one week, and and in those days, it was not uncommon for uh, an act to book in, you know, five nights, do do a week at a at a club. So our friends from Boston, Cambridge, the the Questkin, Jim Questkin Jug Band was playing there. Banana and Michael were, and I were down in the dressing room in between sets or something like that, and a guy came down the steps and he said, "Hey." Next weekend is a Newport Folk Festival. Um, I've got a 45-foot cabin cruiser. Anybody want to ride to uh, to Newport? And we, you know, I, we suspect that he had the hots for Maria Moldar, which was a, not an unreasonable thing to do, <laughs> other than the fact that she was married to Jeff. So, you know, we put our hands up, and about half the Questkin band and, and the three of us got a free ride to Newport. We get to Newport. We have no idea what we're going to do. We didn't have any money. We didn't have tickets. We didn't have Jack Diddley squat. So we get off the boat and go up the, the gangway to the parking lot. And the first guy we ran into was this Boston music business hustler named Bernie Apotheker, who we knew. And Bernie sees us. He says, hey, hi, guys. What what you doing? What are you, what are you up to? We said, we have no idea. We're here, but we don't have any tickets. We don't have any money. He said, oh, well, I'm in charge of press passes for the festival. So why don't you be Harvard or why don't you be Boston College or why don't you be Boston University? And bam, (laughs) we had press passes to the festival, which meant full backstage access, 
first five rows of the venue, anywhere we wanted to go, food, whatever, you know. And so, you know, after three days after the festival, we get on the boat and we go back to Martha's Vineyard. And I don't think that, that among the three of us, we spent any more than 25 cents. And I don't even know what that would have been for, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but meanwhile, there, there we were. We were, you know, I was washing dishes at the, at the, in the kitchen of the coffee house. And we were, had a little guitar repair thing going on. And we sold a few sets of strings and had a, had a good time, had a great time. It was a great time to be there. The music was wonderful. So, you know, the funny thing is, the next summer, I was playing main stage at the at the uh, Newport Folk Festival. I'd gotten the gig to play guitar with Ian and Sylvia. Suddenly, I went from being, you know, a scuffling broke guitar repair guy working retail in a music store in Cambridge to being a hotshot session musician, backup musician, playing guitar, getting paid for it. So it was great. That's awesome. So let me ask you this. Obviously, after that, you... You kind of delved into uh, a psychedelic group by the name of yeah. Auto, Auto Salvage. Yep. After the end, Sylvia gig was up. Sylvia had gotten pregnant. They wanted to take some time off. And I was splitting my time between Cambridge and New York. And I ran into an old friend of mine who said, hey, what are you up to? You know, want to come play guitar? And this turned into the band Auto Salvage, where we were playing fairly experimental, but quite highly arranged music i found some recordings you could you can find them on youtube uh what have you it's oh, yeah. it, it's some pretty damn good stuff thank you thank you yeah we you know we were if we were the right band in the wrong city you know it it was we were really kind of a san francisco band who didn't know that and <laughs> we were in new york and you know in new york at the time if you weren't a blues band or a pop band like the young rascals you just weren't happening i mean we we had some amazingly interesting gigs one of them was opening for frank zappa and the mothers of invention frank took a liking to us and and we discussed having him produce our album he wanted to but then he got a, a major tour happening in um, in europe and we got uh ANSI and signed a deal with rca and went with a with an rca producer so mm-hmm. it was one of those funny things and, and it was almost you know there were these kind of spinal tap moments you know we got we got the great review in rolling stone what a month and a half after the band split up <laughs> it's like oh uh, hmm. well for those who are listening if you're if you want to check out all this you can find some pretty decent copies of the vinyl record on uh discogs if you if you want to you know pay the price and what have you there's some pretty good copies of them still out there so yeah we did um we did do a reunion about really? uh yeah there was a <laughs> There's a wonderful piece that Ed Ward did on Terry Gross's uh, show on NPR. Mm-hmm. And we were the psychedelic band that vanished. And um, that led to us being uh, asked to reform the band and go play South by Southwest. Oh, wow. Which we did. Which we did, I don't know, what was it eight years ago, something like that. And it was three out of the original four. Um, a bass player was 
just not in good enough health to do it. So we, we got a, a sub bass player and, and a couple of other people filling out the band. Banana came and joined us. Our drummer's brother came and, and joined us on keyboards. It was quite something, you know, going and getting the band back together after what it was, close to 50 years. <laughs> That's crazy. Is it one of those moments where you're like, you, you just, you're in the same room and it's like 50 years. It's just, you know, it's like yesterday. You could just like, oh yeah, how you doing? You, can you still play the room? Oh yeah, you can still play that tune. Is it, or does it require a little bit of, okay, you could do this. No, it, was, this. it was fine. It was fine. I mean, Darius, the drummer, hadn't played drums much in a long time, but he snapped right back into it. And Tom was in somewhat declining health. Um, he was the lead singer and the, the main lyricist. But, you know, we, we pulled it off. We did okay. We weren't great, but we were fine. And, and it was, you know, how many chances like that do you get? You know, oh, it's not very many. No. <laughs> so, yeah. So it, it was, I hadn't played electric guitar much in, in a very long time either. So for me, it was a relearning all that and getting some nice gear. You know, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. It was pretty amazing. So from there, uh, we, I want to know is how did you exactly fall into the mythical world that is the Grateful Dead? Was it an introduction no. with like Bear Stanley or was it a little further on down the line? No, no, it was. In 1968, my wife and I moved out from New York to West Marin to Point Reyes Station because our friends, the young boys, were there. And they had been urging urging me to come out for quite a while. Theoretically, I came out to scout it out and maybe the band would move. Well, I moved, but the band didn't. <laughs> you know? Until later, I mean, oddly enough, Two out of the other three guys wound up moving to the Bay Area, but quite a bit after it was too late for the band. So mm -hmm. anyway, the young boys had an office in Point Reyes. The office secretary was a woman named Florence Nathan, later to be known as Rosie McGee. And she was Phil Lesh's girlfriend. Mm. I had started building uh, electric instruments when I moved out with the, the idea of doing, uh, sort of combining being a musician, doing some session work, which I did with Jerry Corbett from the Young Bloods, and becoming an electric luthier. Mm. And I knew of people who had started building acoustic guitars in, in small shops, but I didn't know of anybody doing electric guitars at the level that I was intending to do it, you know, with a lot of craftsmanship and little hints of antique instruments in there and, you know, ideas borrowed from nice banjos of the late 1800s and, and so on. And also, at that time, there was no Seymour Duncan. There was no EMG. There was no Larry DiMarzio. You couldn't go and buy Pekka. You couldn't buy him from Gibson. You couldn't buy him from Gretsch. You couldn't buy him from Fender. But I knew Dan Armstrong in New York, and I knew that, you know, what is it? You got a magnet structure and you got a coil of wire. So that's where you start. And so I started making my own pickup, just figuring it out from scratch. And Rosie saw what I was up to. I'd made a bass for Jesse Cohen Young that, uh, that he really liked. And she thought I should meet her, her boyfriend and in the band, the Grateful Dead. So mm -hmm. I did. I went out to the, uh, the warehouse that they had in Novato and showed off what I was up to. And, and there, Owsley was there and sort of appeared as the missing link to his concept 
um, having a technical crew that would be able to modify or build better gear for musicians to use on stage, in the studio, whatever. And Bear did not see why there was a difference between hi-fi gear, studio gear, and stage gear. Mm. He thought it should all be the same. And I still happen to agree with him. And yes, there are tonal aspects that you want to be able to control differently. But in terms of the the quality of the gear, how it should hold up, what it should be capable of, you know, he thought it should all be the same. And he had brought together uh, Bob Matthews and Betty Cantor, who were recording engineers, and then Ron Wickersham, who's an electronics engineer who'd been working at Ampex and also in and out of recording studios. And then I showed up, and I'm I'm sort of the missing link. I was the luthier, the guy who could work with metal or wood and dabbled enough in electronics to know some stuff. And so that was the foundation of, of Alembic, which became formalized in summer of 1970. Ben had purchased a, a bunch of equipment. I mean, basically... He bought the Grateful Dead sound system and also the recording gear and was the inspiration for being, for really combining the two systems so that the PA system was always ready to send a feed to the 16 track tape machine, which was a pretty early thing. I mean, Olympic may have been, you know, before it. The, it, before the company was formalized as Alembic, the the foundation of Alembic may have been the first group to uh, to do live sixteen track recording, mm-hmm. and so recording was just a it was just a part of the whole thing. It was just integrated so well with the PA, it was just no big deal. I had also gone out with the Young Bloods and mixed sound with them, and so I had experience running. PA systems. And so in the early days of, of Olympic, the early 70s, I was as likely to be out helping set up a, a PA and, and mix as I was to be at the bench working on a guitar. Mm-hmm. And until the Grateful Dead bought the sound system from us, we did a lot of other non-Grateful Dead PA gigs. You know, Santana, Hot Tuna, Jefferson Airplane, the list goes on and on. Dan Hicks, Hot Licks, Youngblood, and so on. And we and we did a the, the reason Olympic Incorporated in 1970 was to be able to satisfy Warner Brothers on a contractual basis to provide the PA and live recording gear to do this medicine ball caravan project that was we traveled across the country across the u.s and then to england to do basically a series of free live gigs it must they must have lost millions (laughs) millions of dollars on this thing especially you know you consider hauling our pa system and live 16 track recording gear to england to do one gig yeah. None of which the footage ever wound up in the movie. And, you know, and that gig was, it was pretty amazing. The band Stoneground got together on the gig. And there in England, it was Sean Phillips, Monta Hoople, Rod Stewart, and the Small Faces, and then Pink Floyd. Oh, wow. To an audience of maybe 500 people. <laughs> <laughs> you do that now. I mean, if you, you have that draw now. You've got 
gosh, the O2 or Wembley or something like that. That line. Yeah, yeah, I know. It was, it was pretty amazing. So, and I did a lot of the PA mixing on that gig. It was it was quite something. So we get back, and then it's back into the workshop and start designing and building. So the the first Olympic base uh, was one that I built for Jack Cassidy of the airplane and hot tuna. And that was really, that base sort of established the Alembic style of the neck running through the body and the low impedance pickups, active electronics that Ron Wickersham designed, hardware that I designed and, and made, a lot of the tailpiece and bridge stuff. And once again, in those days, you couldn't buy this stuff. There were no suppliers of, of all this hardware. And so... I, you know, I just sort of went, okay, I'll just make it. And it turned out to be kind of a big deal. But it, for me, it was just, that's what you do. If you can't buy it, you make it. So we had a couple of people writing questions because there was a couple of people who really wanted to ask you some stuff. And one of them, yeah. um, this question stood out to me the most. The Beatles, their major complaint as to why they stopped touring was that they could not hear the music they were playing over the fans, Right. If they, if they had invested in like the Grateful Dead Wall of Sound PA system, do you think that they would have continued touring? I don't know. I think they might have. I mean, it's, it's interesting because uh, an old friend of mine wound up being one of their roadies on the last tour, uh, Ed Freeman. And I, I saw them at Shea Stadium. And it was really, it was, you know, I could only hear about one third of the concert. And I, and I wasn't. You know, I wasn't in the nosebleed seats, you know. It, it's interesting because there, there's, it's definitely true. They couldn't hear themselves. The amazing thing is how good they were and how in tune they sang for not having any monitors and not being able to hear themselves. I mean, it, mm. they were they were really good, you know. <laughs> and if you, if you see any of the the concert footage from those days, you can see just how what a great band they were, and and under those circumstances, God, and then and then the whole thing of just being mobbed all the time, and then being you know having to be surrounded by guards at at, at their hotels, and it, it the whole scene was just too much, you know. I don't know. I mean, it it really would have been interesting to hear them with a great PA system, you know, because they. They certainly had the chops. You know, the, one of the things that amazed me seeing them live was just how important George's vocals were to their to their blend. It's so easy to go all Lennon and McCartney, but but George was right there with them. You know, he was great. So I don't know. It really would be interesting. I mean, you know, the one band that did make it through that and is still going in the course of the Rolling Stones. You know, you know, they managed to make it through that era and survive to this day to this you know with great pa systems and in-ear monitors you know and all that kind of stuff that makes it a whole lot easier to to perform i i have one more question i gotta ask tell us about the peanut guitar because that's that was very very interesting to a lot of people when i was playing uh, in auto salvage we had a fan of the band what was I playing? I was probably playing a 335 and a Fender. Oh, God, what was it? It was a Duo Sonic. And I tried a Strat and didn't particularly like it. And this fan of our band was a 
manager of an apartment building in the Lower East Side, and some junkie had left behind a smashed guitar that was a 61 or a 62 Les Paul, which means it was the SG body shape. <clears throat> Somehow or other, this guy managed to smash the body, but not the neck, because it's the neck that usually goes on those things. Mm-hmm. And I got it from him um, three pickup that was a custom, and I thought, well, I'll just make a body for it. And I had this little cabinet shop a few blocks away from where I lived, cut out a mahogany body that I drew up based on a probably 1835, 1840 German or Austrian guitar that I had, an antique. I put it together on my kitchen table and in the loft that Amber and I had in New York. It's funny because I don't really remember how I did it. And when it when it resurfaced a year and a half ago or so, and I went out to West Marin to to see it and actually pick it up, I brought it up to my oldest son's recording studio, mm-hmm. and his mom was there. I said, Amber, how how the hell did I make this thing? I don't remember. And she said, oh, you had a Dremel. <laughs> a little Dremel Moto tool. I said, okay, that must have been it. <laughs> but it, I did a pretty good job. I mean, it's, I'm kind of amazed now that I could do that under those crude conditions and lacquer spray it out in the hallway of the of this loft building and you know right. and, and get away it. with it. It's apparently, like I said, I, I the way I read it was it was been lost to the sands of time. How did it resurface? Well, evidently, so. Garcia used it on the uh, on that Grateful Dead live album, uh, the Skull and Roses album, and then he retired it, and somehow or other it wound up at, at Rock Scully's place in Monterey. A friend of Rock saw it up there, and the neck had been broken off, and apparently Rock was going to just trash the thing, and so this guy Walt Dixon made a deal with Rock, you know, traded him something like a Yamaha 12-string for it, and then had somebody glue the neck back on, which they didn't do a very good job of, and they refretted it and didn't do a very good job of that. Hmm. And then it just sort of disappeared into Walt's little home recording studio in Marin for umpteen years. And then a, a few years ago, somebody said, hey, you know, this guy has a guitar that you might have made. And I tried to get in touch with him and couldn't get in touch with him. And finally, he got in touch with me and said, I got this guitar that I think you might have put together. What's the story? And so anyway, indeed, that was that was Peanut. And I went out and saw it and Walt very kindly loaned it to me so I could document it. And I'm making... Um, making some replicas of it uh, now. That was my next uh, question, if there was going to be some replicas made. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a run of seven of them. Six, six of them are sold, and one of them is going to be mine. Somewhere along the line in 71 or so, Jerry had us take one of the pickups out. It was originally a three-pickup guitar, because it, it was a Les Paul Custom. And so it went down to a, being a two-pickup guitar, and that's how Jerry played it. So on the replicas, I'm going to offer them both ways. 
both with the uh, as in the in the Garcia mode with two pickups and the and in in the return mode with three pickups. So it's kind of fun, you know, recreating this. I one of the things that hung me up for a while was that there's a a, a strip of inlay marquetry down the center of the back, which had originally been made by a French company. There was a French company that made dozens and dozens and dozens of, of inlay banding patterns. Just beautiful stuff. And of course, the company went out of business 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't want to build these replicas without duplicating that inlay banding. And my friend Kevin Almeida up at, uh, at Gurian Instruments in Seattle makes inlay banding. So I sent him photographs and measurements and he wound up making the most beautiful replicas that that are that are better than the originals i mean it just just absolutely stunning what he did and that that enables me to to build accurate replicas of of the guitar so that's uh yeah that's that and yeah as soon as i announced it bam you know six six people were lined up to, to get them. So. We're going to take a little break right now, but we'll be right back with part two of this very in-depth interview with Mr. Rick Turner. Looking for a new podcast? Check out the Infectious Groove podcast. My name is Russ, and I host the show along with Michelle and Kyle. Every Monday, the three of us bring you music news and tell you our jammy jams, so you'll always have new music to check out. The Infectious Groove podcast discusses music from nearly every decade and genre while openly displaying our passion for music you need to hear. On top of that, we have a thought-provoking main topic of discussion every week to get you thinking, discussing, and sharing music. We also include interviews with the music stars of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms. Subscribe and listen to the Infectious Groove podcast on your favorite podcast platform today. Today's episode is brought to you by Fanatics. Fanatics is the world's largest collection of official fan gear from all the leagues, teams, and players you love. If you enjoy our show and are looking to buy a new jersey, sweatshirt, or hat, you can support us by going to podgo.co, that's P-O-D-G-O dot C-O, slash fanatics, and getting 25% off your next order. That's podgo.co slash fanatics. Fanatics, officially licensed everything. Hey everyone, I am Chris. And I'm Christine, and we do a podcast about life, love, and hot topics. We're family-friendly. Yeah, well, mostly. And you can catch us every week. So subscribe to The Chris and Christine Show on your favorite streaming service. And buckle up, Buttercup, because you're in for some fun. Some fun? Oh, yeah. That sounds fantastic. Welcome back. See, we weren't gone too long. Now, here comes the conclusion of our interview with Mr. Rick Turner. All right, so I want to yep. I want to move on a little bit. I do have to ask this question, okay? So how? Did, yeah. So you've you're done. You're with Alembic. You're moving forward. How does the introduction to John McVie come about? Oh, John called me in 1976 when Fleetwood Mac went into the uh, the record plant in Sausalito to record Rumors. Uh, John called me up and invited me to come down to the studio. He, he had an Olympic base, an early Olympic base. It might be serial number 33 or something like that. Anyway, it was, you know, come on down to the studio, 
see if you can do a setup on the bass, meet the band, what else are you doing, and all that. And I went there and just got along famously with, with everybody. It was just really great. You know, Lindsay had much the same folk music background that I do, so that was a, a good point. I got along fine with Nick and Stevie and Christine and, and the engineers and I was basically then invited to just drop by anytime I felt like it while they were recording. That's and a, so Man, I tell you, Rick, that's one hell of an invitation right there. It was great. You know, I wound up going to the studio two or three times a week while they were recording rumors and wound up uh, putting uh, uh, the Olympic Stratoblaster that Ron Wickersham had designed, which is a preamp that goes into a Stratocaster. And I, I put a blaster in Lindsay's Strat, worked on his Les Paul, worked on his Martin, worked on John's bass, more than just the uh, soap opera of, of that time. There's another funny thing that happened, which was that Fleetwood Mac, you know, when, when basically it was down to John and Chris and Mick, their manager put together this band. He claimed that he owned the Fleetwood Mac name and he put together a band of imposters and put them out on the road. Well, John and Mick sued him, got a restraining order. And so that stopped. But the manager countersued, and what happened is that all of their record royalties wound up going into an escrow account and were just piling up for several years. And while they're about halfway through recording rumors, if that far, they won their lawsuit, and suddenly the floodgate of money opens up. Mm. And, you know, that led to all kinds of things. Well, one thing it led to was John and Lindsay ordering instruments from me. Uh, Lindsay got a couple of Olympic guitars. He got a six string and a 12 string. And John got the very first carbon fiber neck bass. And then he got an all ebony top and back bass. And then he also got a walnut Olympic bass that had a stainless steel fretless fingerboard that he used on, uh, on rumors. The outro on the chain, you know, the boom, da dum, da da dum, boom. That is on the uh, on the stainless steel fingerboard bass. They wound up spending a lot of money. <laughs> I had also been talking to Lindsay about guitars, electric guitars, and we both had this sort of same idea of of an acoustic aesthetic with an electric guitar that would have the warmth of the Les Paul, but the clarity of a strap. And so I, I designed the Model 1 and showed Lindsay the, the blueprint. And he said, well, when you have one, I want to check it out. In November of 78, uh, I left Olympic. It was a very bad scene. I really can't get too deep into it, but uh, let's just say there was a lot of money missing, and oh. uh, <laughs> and I left. Say no more. And I did, yeah. Uh, and anyway, so I started up. Uh, oh, and then uh, and then my house got torched. Uh, that was that was not fun. Arsonist burns my house down. Yeah. Anyway, I started up Turner Guitars in in uh, early '79, 
And as soon as I had a playable guitar, I took it down to L.A. to uh, the show to Lindsay. And they were rehearsing for the Tusk tour at that time. The, the Lindsay's guitar tech, Ray Lindsay, was a good friend of mine at that point. And so I went down and they were rehearsing in a huge soundstage in Hollywood. And I got there early. Ray was there. He put the put the guitar up on stage, plugged it in, loved it. And we just went to the back of the soundstage to, to, to wait for the band to come in. Lindsay came in, picked the guitar up, and he didn't put it down for three hours. Wow. And at one, at one point uh, during, during all that, he goes up to the mic and says, Hey, Ray, you can leave the Strat, the Les Paul, and the Ovation at home. This is all I need. And, um, and that was it. One question I got to ask is like, so you and Lindsay have this, obviously this conversation, Hey, we want to build, you know, this guitar. Did you go through any like drafts or was it already in your head exactly what you wanted to, to build? No, I, I thought it out pretty carefully and then drew it up very, very carefully. And, you know, and all of the elements in there were very deliberately chosen. I wanted the mahogany body for the warmth and the, the sort of nice round sustain that you get from from mahogany. I wanted the stiffer neck, the the laminated maple and purple heart neck, to give it a little more sharpness of attack. Rosewood fingerboard. I like I like the the qualities of a rosewood fingerboard. And then the single pickup thing with the EQ was a as an attempt to see how far I could how much tone I could pull out of a single pickup guitar. And I wanted the, the very sort of acoustic aesthetic so that, you know, from 50 feet away, it would look like a little acoustic guitar, but not sound like one, you know? Yeah. So it was a, it's a bunch of elements in it that, uh, that were all very, very deliberate on my part. My thing about it is, is like I said, like like Lindsay's a very underrated guitar player. I mean, not many people can play that kind of music with their fingernails. Did he say to you, like, hey, I use, I don't use plectrums. I want to use my fingers. Can you design around that? Was that a part of the conversation? No, that was just, it was a part of my observation of just watching him and hearing him play in the studio so much. With his background, I knew exactly where he was coming from. You know, because that, that was my background. I mean, I I started off finger picking and then I got into flat picking and, you know, and I, I knew where that, where his guitar style was coming from in terms of the the folk roots of it. And, you know, and I too had, had taken folk root guitar playing and gone quite sideways with it, with, with auto salvage. So, you know, that Folky gone bad thing <laughs> was, was right where where my brain was at, you know. So yeah, I I could I could absolutely relate to his guitar style and the means by which he achieved it. So would you say the Model One is is it your most popular line of the guitars that you sell? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it, it's definitely the flagship of the fleet. You know, we we make a lot of different stuff and and it the demand comes and goes and comes and goes and it always comes back to the model one you know it's really um it's it's pretty cool you know we we do some variations on it now we do a 
a featherweight version where the body is predominantly western red cedar that has a, a cap on it front and back and it's an interesting little piece of engineering actually because it's mm-hmm. like in engineering terms it's like a stressed skin structure so it 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 has significantly more longitudinal stiffness with the caps on it than it would without it and it it has you know for lack of a better word a little more of an acoustic sound to it plugged in a little airier than the than the model than the standard mahogany model one it's a nice contrast i've seen some of the guitars on your website i mean they're it's some of that belongs in the louvre it's they're just absolutely stunning pieces of work you know it's really fun being able to make pretty guitars it's not the essence of what the guitar making is about you know the the most important things are the sound and the playability but once we can cover that fairly easily which i have to say we can then it's it's fun to make them pretty you know and i i've always had a a love of of interesting woods and materials i'm set up to process wood not quite at the sawmill level but the next level down from a sawmill which is that we can take billets of wood and and run them through what's called a resaw which is a a, a pretty impressive uh conveyor belt fed horizontal bandsaw and i can i can cut up to about 14 inches wide on it and i've i've optimized it i've modified the saw a little bit and optimized it for doing very very thin curve, minimal waste sawing of exotic wood. And because of that, wood finds me, whether it's Brazilian rosewood or our some of our local redwood, old growth redwood, or anything in between, it gives me a lot of control over the wood that we can use. I don't have to go to the same old luthier suppliers for my wood. And in fact, Two of the suppliers in the business wound up getting saws exactly like I have. I once did the math on it when I was cutting a lot of Brazilian rosewood, and I realized that I was getting about 17% higher yield than traditional sawing methods would do. And when you're, you know, especially when you're sawing something like Brazilian rosewood that's worth anywhere from 500 bucks to 1500 bucks a set for a guitar, you know, you start saving 17% and you're looking at sawdust anymore is worth some money, you know? And so, you know, I've gotten into the the technology of processing wood and and all that. It's just endlessly fascinating to a geek like me, you know? (laughs) So. I got to ask you about your time you spent at Gibson in 1988, the R&D department. Do you have uh, any notable advances, anything like that? None. (laughs) Well, yes, I did, but Gibson didn't wind up with them, using them. I was out of the guitar business for almost eight years. I was a cabinet maker, a production woodworker, carpenter, you know, but I, I kept my hand in. I did a little bit of design work. I designed a hexaphonic pickup for Gary Kaler, Kaler Industries. I designed um, a bass pickup for Bernardo Rico, BC Rich. And, uh, you know, and I had various ideas that I kept putting in a notebook. And in 88, I went to the NAMM show and met up with an old friend of mine, Tim Shaw, who was a, a vice president at Gibson at the time. Gibson had been taken over 
by the triumvirate of Henry Jeskowitz, uh, Gary Zabrowski, and oh god, what was the other guy's name? Anyway, about I think they took over in '86 or something like that. Anyway, I asked him if there was any any work for an outside designer, and he said, let me run it up the flagpole, and he did, and they said, well, why don't you come to Nashville and show us what you got? So I did. They liked what they saw, and then on the last day I was there on the way to the airport, uh, Henry Tuskowitz started talking about the artist relations office he was trying to open in LA and the trouble that he was having with it, setting up a showroom and having a reliable person handle artist relations. And I explained to him how I had done artist relations uh, for Olympic, going to sound checks with instruments and, you know, and, and taking the approach of avoiding management at all costs. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you show up at sound check with a couple of instruments in your hand. You can walk right in. Everybody thinks you belong there. <laughs> and then you figure out who the guitar techs are. Because to a traveling rock and roll band, one of the unofficial duties of the guitar tech, the guitar roadie, is to find something interesting for the guitar players while they're on the road. And so you show up with an interesting instrument and, and you got a shot at it. You know, that's how I sold instruments to uh, the Almond Brothers, you know, oh show up at Soundcheck. And of course, it, you know, they knew that I've been involved with the dead, but still, that's what you do. You know, you show up at Soundcheck. Anyway, so Henry offered me the position of independent designer, five-year contract nice little stipend every month and my medical insurance covered. And then a corporate job running the, uh, the artist relations office in North Hollywood. So I moved from, um, from Northern California down to LA, something I never thought I would do. <laughs> uh, and went corporate. And then bit by bit, Henry's true nature as an insane person came through. And I realized that working corporate for Gibson was working corporate hell. It was incredibly crazy. And, you know, and so anyway, that didn't work. I left corporate. I stayed on as an, as an independent and a consultant on some stuff. I did get to go to some great bluegrass festivals like Telluride a couple of years worth. And oh, one funny thing working for Gibson, and this was typical of, of the corporate culture, most of my bosses in marketing, which covered artist relations, neither one of them was a musician. Well, I went to a little bluegrass festival outside Pasadena and met this very young mandolin player. He was eight years old at the time. His name is Chris Dilley. He blew me away. He was blowing everybody away. And I realized this kid is the future of mandolin in bluegrass. And I met with his dad and said, you know, could you send me a, give me a package? He did. And I sent it back to uh, Nashville and said, I really want to sign this kid. He is the future of bluegrass mandolin. They thought I was out of my fucking mind wanting to sign an eight-year-old kid. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, what was it he got three years ago, the MacArthur grant for half a million dollars. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The name. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Being told that I should be reading billboard and going after the guitar players in the top hundred and me thinking, you know, 
I think I should do the research and find out what guitar players influence those guys, mm. you know, and take Gibson back to its, its endorsement roots of the really fine jazz musicians and, and people like that. Don't come out here to Hollywood and spend five grand on hotels and meals thinking that you're going to sign Eddie Van Halen. You're not. I wanted to go after the up-and-coming musicians. I mean, and I mean musicians, not necessarily rock stars. Right. You know, I was interested in the music aspect of it. And the two guys over me, uh, it, it was all about reading Billboard. It wasn't about listening to the music. You know, it was kind of sad in a way. So that was, you know, the Dilbert principle at work at Gibson. And, you know, it ultimately led to the collapse of the company. You know, so I got out. And we had kind of a um, a golden moment there uh, where there were these great guys in the Gibson Custom Shop, pretty crazy, but making really wonderful stuff and never getting the respect that they deserved from from the higher up, you know. So that was Gibson for me. I did get one patent that was assigned to Gibson, something that never went into production. There were only three prototypes made. Robbie Krieger got one. I think it might be one of the best SGs ever made with a, a carbon fiber fingerboard that I that I designed. And probably the most significant thing is that I got to work on and develop and learn how piezo pickup work and design them and, and make them. And that led to some really great stuff, which I still do now. So, you know, it was a Gibson was a learning experience. I did I did just fine financially. I was sorry not to be able to be a part of a rebirth of the company, which is what a number of us were hoping for. You know, it seemed at first like that was going to happen, and and then you know, and then stuff like Henry deciding that uh, that the best thing to do for marketing was to spend $13 million for eight years worth of naming rights to the Universal Amphitheater. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, a number of us thought there were better uses for $13 million than, than putting your name on a theater in L.A. It's not like everybody leaving is going to run down the Guitar Center and buy a Les Paul, you know. <laughs> maybe, maybe... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah. hey, Guitar yeah. Center is only 20, 20 minutes away, yeah. That's funny. Did you hear that Guitar Center filed for bankruptcy the other day? Oh, Guitar Center. Yep, yeah. yep, certainly did. Yeah. That's been a long time coming. Mm. You know, that's, that's another company that, oh God, if they would treat their employees well and, and train them. You know, retail has really gotten blindsided by the combination of Sweetwater and Amazon. You know, it's a tough thing. On the other hand, there are some dealers out there who figured out the internet and are doing great. I mean, our, our top three dealers do most of their sales online, you know, and, and it's been great. People use Turner guitars. Other than, I'm obviously other than Lindsay, because everybody knows Lindsay uses the model one. Do you have like, um, like I've seen John Mayer use a model one? Yeah, John, John Mayer's got one that he used quite prominently. I was very happy about that. And we can go back to, um, Oh, Colin Hay, Minute Work. Uh, he's one. Uh, Stanley Clark has a bass, a Model 1 bass. Uh, departed now John Stewart, who uh, was oh, wow. in, in the Kingston Trail. And he had a couple of Model 1s. Robbie Krieger 
plays a couple of my nylon string guitars. CB had, had a nice model one. Actually, CB Nicks had one, a color-bodied one that some friend of hers walked off with. Wow. And in the soul department, soul, uh, Frankie Beverly had one, you know, it's. There are musicians that I know, like I said, I, I follow very closely. There's one in, in Europe that's very prominent. Have you ever heard of Stephen Wilson? Yeah, yeah. I know that he's always looking for experimental guitars and, and, and looking for new things. He's he's definitely one of those uh, pioneers right now of sound. One, one of our best players is a woman named Susanna Rea. She's Spanish. She lives in Amsterdam. She's a terrific jazz guitar player and singer. She's kind of the Diana Krall of guitar. Um, you know, she's she's got the whole package. Really fine musician. I love, love her playing and Hope that she can get some uh, traction here in the U.S. at some point. Uh, you know, she do really well at some of the jazz festivals. I have to yeah. ask you, obviously, like you said, you've been in the music business a very long time. Do you have any really good funny anecdotes that you like to tell every now and again? Yeah, there's a funny one. <laughs> so I'm on the road with the Grateful Dad. It has to be 71 or 72. And there had been this run of airplane hijacking of people people hijacking airplanes to go to Havana, you know. So they had just started putting in metal detectors and they put them in right in the right before the, the jetway. You're hanging out, you haven't gone through anything, but there's this metal detector that you have to walk through to get onto the, the jetway to get onto the airplane. Well, everybody carried knives on the Grateful Dead, you know, in the band, on the crew, whatever. And mostly it was buck knives, folding buck knives. But, you know, some people were, they were hunting knives. You know, everybody had a knife. And, you know, we're sitting there, we suddenly realize that there's this metal detector and it has this analog meter on it, you know. So, like, when it kicks into the red zone, they pull you, you know, the, the cop pulls you aside. Well, we're sitting there, and Mickey Hart realizes that the thing is just plugged into the wall right behind his seat. So he reaches behind with his foot and unplugs the metal detector. <laughs> 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 and the guy, the guy is staring at them. Evidently, there was not a pilot light. It was just this meter. And the guy is staring at it. We all get on the plane. Nothing. Nothing. Oh, <laughs> <man. laughs> That's a, you couldn't do that today. No question about it. Oh, no. no, no, couldn't do it today. No. Oh, no. Anyway, that's awesome. All right. So yeah. the Model One anniversary was recently. Uh, you made a limited the run. 40th. With, the fortieth with yeah. uh, Lindsay's signature on them. We did indeed. Yeah, Lindsay. I went to one of his shows and said, you know, we'd like to do this. And what we're going to do is kick a percentage into um, to a charity, Guitars in the Classroom, which is set up to help teachers in primarily grade school use guitar and ukulele in songwriting and music and English as a second language stuff. And it's really, it's a great, it's a great organization. Mm-hmm. So we were able to these guitars with uh, and with Lindsay's signature and what we did was we reproduced Lindsay's first Model One, which had a trapeze tailpiece on it that I made. I only made three of those 
And so I wound up having my oldest son, who is a master metal worker, do a run of, of the tailpieces, the reproduction tailpieces. And we did these uh, as close as we could to, to Lindsay's first model one. And they were, man, they just, bam, gone. See you later. <laughs> it was great. It was great. And Lindsay couldn't have been nicer. You know, I went to one of his gigs, went to, went to the sound check. And talked to him after sound check, and and it, you know, like I said, he couldn't have been, just couldn't have been nicer. And and this was at a rough time. Once again, it's avoid the managers, avoid the, yes, <laughs> avoid the booking agent. See how close you can get, you know. And bam, and it was just, you know, it was just, what what do you need? I said, well, I need you to sign a bunch of signatures, and I'll have them reproduced. He did, I don't know, 20, 25, you know, Sharpie signatures. And my logo guy basically turned them into transfers. They are one step away from original and they're all different. You know, it, it's an, it was an interesting way because there was no way I was going to build a guitar and take it to L.A. and get him to sign it and bring it back. <laughs> so I've had the privilege of meeting the man and he has such a very kind, very accommodating, very warm individual. I'm, I'm Yeah. You you hear horror stories of other people, but he was one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life, hands down. You know, he is a perfectionist. He is an excitable boy, they all said, you know, and you just have to gauge where he's at and bring something to the table. I mean, you know, I mean, I've got, you know, I mean, I've known him now for 40 um 44 years or something like that you know and you know and he knows my musical background and and knows he knows where i'm coming from and respects that we don't have a intimate relationship i i don't talk to him frequently but when i do it's incredibly cordial and and i i also seem to design guitars that suit him so when i come up with something new i've got a pretty good idea whether he's gonna like it or not yeah. and he generally does so it's great obviously you know it's 2020 i'm sure you've got plenty of good years ahead of you what's your uh, plans for the future let's talk about a little bit of that and also what do you want your uh, lasting legacy to be in the uh, pantheon of rock history well what am i up to i am i'm not done <laughs> not yeah. done yet I'm looking forward to delving back into some more acoustic guitar building uh, over the next few years. I've got orders. I would like to um, solidify the the design ideas that I've been building to over the last number of years. I mean, it, there's, there's one guitar in particular that sort of is the, the foundation of my acoustic building now, and that is the guitar that I built for Henry Kaiser, the acoustic guitar that I built for him to take to Antarctica when he got an artist in residence grant to go down and compose music. And uh, so, you know, he'd seen a, a, Henry's been a client of mine for many years. He saw an acoustic guitar that I built at one of the Healdsburg guitar festivals and really liked it. And then called me up and said, okay, what's the only continent on which a record album has never been made? I'm going, oh, my God. He said, Antarctica, and I figured out how to get there. <laughs> <laughs> Turned out he knew the, the National Science Foundation does something like a half a dozen artists and residence grants a year. 
And Henry knew somebody on the grant committee who basically said, if you write a halfway understandable grant application, you'll get it because nobody has done that. So he did. And the other aspect of Henry is that he's got his master's degree in marine biology from Harvard. And he used to teach scientific diving at UC Berkeley. I said, so Henry, are you going to are you going to go diving when you go down there? He said, well, I don't really dare tell the grant committee that I trained half the divers down there, but I'm sure that I can get them to suit me up and, and go down. <laughs> so indeed, some of his students down there suited him up in a dry suit and took him diving under the ice Ross shell, uh, the Ross ice shell, wow. where they dynamite a hole in the ice. They jump in and go swimming under the ice. And he loved it so much that he became a professional diver for for Antarctica and a videographer. And he has now logged more time under the ice in Antarctica than probably 90% of the other divers down there. And it's just, it's just amazing. So I designed this guitar, a logical advancement on, on what I had been doing a few of. It combines fine woods and carbon fiber, where I think it really counts, and makes for an incredibly stable instrument that uh, is loud and balanced. Doesn't sound like a Martin, doesn't sound like a Gibson, but it's got the warmth there. Uh, I, I sort of describe it as being, you know, sort of 70% flat top, 15% arch top, 15% Selmer Ferry. So it's got a really nice, very present mid-range without being honky at all. And it also has really terrific sustain of the upper harmonic. And a really fine classical guitar player who also builds classical guitars, a friend of mine, Alejandro Cervantes, played one of them and said, Rick, this is the only steel string guitar on which I can play classical repertoire. And I said, that's really an interesting comment. And, you know, can you tell me a little bit more? He said, well, most steel string guitars, the E and the, the low E and the A string are kind of unusable above the fifth fret. And in classical repertoire, we have to use those notes from the fifth fret up on the low string and have them sound like they belong with the rest of the string. And I really, it was so interesting having a, such a thoughtful critique from a guy who really knows his stuff. And it, it, it encouraged me to, to stick in that direction with what I'm doing. So yes, yeah, so I want to build more of those. I like to design some more electrics, some more bases. My youngest son and I got a patent last year on a microphone design specific for acoustic instruments, banjo, fiddle, upright bass, cello. And that's been an interesting project too, is, is delving into this new world of microphones and coming up with something that was actually patentable. And my son was fully involved in, in working the design with me. So it was really, really gratifying to have that experience, you know. To be to be quite fair, I'm pretty sure your place in the Guitar Hall of Fame is cemented. People will be talking about the Model One for you know forever, pretty much. It, you know, I certainly hope the company can go on when I can. You know, that's something that we're that we're looking at is is 
is the legacy of, of keeping things moving. And I've got two guys in particular here who uh, who are really dedicated. And so, yeah, I think I think we'll keep going and try to make the best guitars of my career from now on. So oh. that's it. All right. So I want to close this out, and I always give my guest the opportunity. It's basically if, imagine that the entire planet is listening to this particular broadcast. If you want to say one thing to the entire planet, what would it be? Peace among us, please. Mr. Turner, I have to say this has been probably one of the greatest privileges of my life. This has been an absolutely fantastic hour and a half. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for coming on. All right. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Well, that's a wrap, folks. And I want to thank the incredible and legendary Rick Turner for stopping by the Derek Duvall Show. I absolutely enjoyed having him on. And who knows? Down the line, he may come on again. Coming up on January the 20th, which is also in the United States Inauguration Day. I know a lot of you are looking forward to that one. We have an interview with the creators of the documentary Cleaning Up the Town, The Making of Ghostbusters. If you love the 80s classic like I do, you're going to want to tune in for that episode. A little teaser, I nerded out quite a bit as I wanted to be a Ghostbuster growing up. Have you heard the news that our official website has launched? That's right. DerekDuvallShow.com is live, and it's your one-stop shop for quick links to our past shows, ways to connect with us on social media, and information about our guests and their projects. Who knows? Maybe we'll even launch some official merchandise one day down the line. The vaccine is rolling out slowly, so please do not let down your guard. Wear a mask. Don't touch your face and or other people. I'm chuffed to bits that the vaccine is getting out there, but we are far from seeing the finish line on this horrible disease. If you fancy a good laugh, on the other hand, head on over to our friends The Chris and Christine Show to hear an exclusive interview with myself and the lovely Mrs. Duval. It was quite a lot of fun to tape, and we hope you find it just as hilarious as we did. And on that note, we will part ways. Be safe, be well, and be kind. These are dark times we are living in, and even the smallest good deed can change the world. Just remember, folks, that's rock and roll. See you in two weeks, planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvalShow.com, for the latest news on downloads and to explore past episodes. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Derek Duval Show.